Well, hi everyone, this is Deb. And this is Beth. And we wanted to take a moment to tell you about our brand new podcast called Dying to be Found. Beth. Yeah? If you were to describe our true crime podcast to people, what would you say? Well, I tell people that we are two sisters who are intrigued by crime. We also try to delve into stories that we think our listeners can relate to. Deb, how would you describe Dying to be Found? I'd like to tell people that our podcast is open to the interpretation of our listeners. We don't always discuss big names in crime. We also talk about missing persons who are just dying to be found. But then again, there are definitely criminals that are dying to be found by the police. We're always open to whatever stories we report and really want our listeners to take an active role in why we do this. Beth, do you have anything else to add? No, I think we covered it really well. You can listen to brand new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. And please visit us at our website at dying to be found and on social media at Dying to be Found. Welcome back to episode 16. Yay, True Crime B&B here. Hi, Bailey. Hello, Mom. So, I'm the bad guy this week. You usually are. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the bad guy, and I have decided to do installment four of Architect Mayhem. All right. But this takes a while to get to the architect part. It starts out as a, a disaster story. Oh, you know I love those. So. so let's just get going. Okay. All right. Oh, and one other caveat before we get started on this. There are names and words from about six different countries in here. So I will do my best to stay on top of the correct version of pronunciation. But if I flip back and forth, it's just that there are Russian and German and Italian and Spanish and all I kinds of things. I am so beyond confused about where this story is going right now. Okay, I'm ready. I got it. <laughs> all right. July 1st, 2002, Bashkirian Airlines Flight 2937, which I will call from here on out, BAL 2937, all right. took off from Moscow, headed for Barcelona. This aircraft was built in 1995, and it was piloted by a very experienced crew, including a captain who had more than 12,000 flight hours, including nearly 5,000 flight hours on this particular aircraft model, and who was also undergoing a routine evaluation of his performance by the chief pilot of the entire airline. Okay. Guess that's just something they occasionally had done. Yeah, it's just a work check. Just to make sure they're still following protocols and all that. The first officer, who was not officially on duty because of the performance evaluation, so the chief pilot of the airline was in the first officer's chair. Okay. So he was not officially on duty, but he also had close to 7,900 flight hours. The flight engineer had almost 4,200 flight hours, and the flight navigator had about 13,000 flight hours. So the point is, this team had a combined 42,000 plus flight hours between them. Mm -hmm. This particular flight was a chartered flight. So as such, it was carrying a group who had hired the flight privately. Mm -hmm. The group on this plane, a total of 60 passengers, along with nine crew members, were headed to Barcelona. Once there, the plan was for the passengers to go on to Costa del Rada, a beautiful beach area in Catalonia, Spain. Okay. The group consisted primarily of Russian school children, 46 children to be exact. Most of these children had parents who were high-ranking officials in the Bashkortostan region in okay. Russia where they lived. BAL 2937, the aircraft that I just described, was flying at 36,000 feet, which for our non-American listeners is about 11,000 meters, 
and it was just barely inside the border of Germany. But this particular area was under the air traffic control of a private airspace control company called Skyguide, which operated out of Zurich, Switzerland. At the Skyguide location in Zurich, the airspace control was being handled not by the normal two people, but by only one man who was handling two workstations at the same time. The man working the two control stations was Peter Nielsen, who was receiving delayed radar data, but was also distracted because he was directing one aircraft to land, but also because of the additional workload. He suddenly realized that BAL-2937 was flying on a direct collision course with another aircraft, which was a cargo flight by DHL, which is a delivery and logistics company. The DHL flight was a 1990 Boeing aircraft that was piloted by another two very experienced pilots, and they had nearly 19,000 flight hours between them. The DHL flight was en route from Bergamo, Italy to Brussels, Belgium. Mm -hmm. As soon as Peter Nielsen recognized the danger, he contacted BAL 2937 and instructed the pilot to immediately descend by 1,000 feet or about 300 meters to avoid the imminent collision. The instructions Peter Nielsen gave had been sent about one minute before the two planes were about to collide. Wow, okay. Seconds after the Russian crew began to descend per the air traffic control's instructions, their aircraft's collision avoidance system told them to climb. At the same moment, the DHL flight's collision avoidance system gave them instruction to descend. BAL 2937 followed the air traffic control instructions. DHL followed the collision avoidance system's instructions. In other words, they both descended. Oh boy. In his haste, back at air traffic control, Nielsen also erroneously told BAL 2937 that the DHL flight was coming in from their right. Suddenly, the BAL 2937 flight crew gained visual sight of the DHL flight coming in from their left, and at that point, they attempted to stop their descent and follow the collision avoidance system's instructions to climb, but it was too late. So just after 11.30 p.m. local Germany time, the two aircraft collided at nearly a right angle, and the Russian aircraft broke apart in the air. Wow. And it was middle of the night, too. So it was the middle of the night. Visibility is just non-existent. <clears throat> That's probably. right. Jeez. All 69 passengers and crew on board the Bashkirian Airlines flight and both pilots on the DHL flight perished. In the aftermath of this tragedy, it was revealed that Skyguide, the air traffic control company, had been performing maintenance on ground-based collision warning system, which would have given them two and a half minutes of warning to the controller had it been working. Mm -hmm. Nielsen had not been made aware that this system was even shut down. The main radar image processing system was also down for maintenance, and the backup system that was being used was providing delayed imaging, which is why Peter Nielsen was getting late information and why it took him so long to recognize what was happening. Okay. Also, there was actually a second air traffic controller who was on duty that night, but he was resting in another room, leaving Nielsen to cover both of the stations. This was against the company's written regulations, but it was known to be a common practice, and it was tolerated by the company. So irresponsible. I can't. It's very irresponsible, oh. yes. The official report included positions, including dissenting ones, by all the countries involved, but in general, the official report placed the fault within the organization and management of the Sky Guy company. Ultimately, Skyguide accepted responsibility for the tragedy and paid compensation to the families of the children killed. There was a trial in Switzerland where eight people, including four managers and four air traffic controllers from this company, Skyguide, were brought up on criminal charges related to the collision. Three managers received suspended sentences, 
one manager had to pay a fine, and all four of the air traffic controllers, including Peter Nielsen, were acquitted of any wrongdoing. So, back to BAL 2937, which was carrying all those school children to a much-anticipated holiday in Spain. One of the chaperones on this flight was a woman named Svetlana Koloeva, who was there with her 10-year-old son, Constantine, and her 4-year-old daughter, Diana. Svetlana's husband, a Russian architect named Vitaly Koloev, had been working in Barcelona at the time and had been excitedly waiting for his family to arrive for this visit. His daughter Diana couldn't wait to travel to Barcelona with her mother and brother to see her father on holiday, so they were all really excited about this trip. Mm. Since Koloev was relatively nearby, he was one of the first to arrive at the location of the wreckage. He had gotten the news that his entire family had been in this horrible mid-air collision, and he immediately traveled to Iberlingen, Germany, to participate in the search for their bodies. Vitaly, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, located a broken pearl necklace that had belonged to his daughter Diana. As he continued to search, he was also the one to find her body, which was three kilometers away from the location of the collision, and which was still intact because she had fallen through tree canopies, which broke her fall. So mostly internal, probably. Yeah, it was. It should, they just fell from you know thirty-five thousand feet. Yeah, that's. His wife, Svetlana, had fallen into a cornfield. He did not find her body. And horribly, his son Constantine's body had fallen onto the asphalt in front of an Iberlingen bus shelter. Yuri Koloyev, Vitaly's brother, said that this experience destroyed Vitaly and caused him to have a nervous breakdown, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. The grief was simply too much to bear. He spent his whole first year visiting his family's graves and he turned his home into a shrine for them. As time went on, he received a document from Skyguide offering him 50,000 Swiss francs for the death of his wife and 50,000 Swiss francs for the death of each of his two children, which would have been about 165,000 US dollars. But in accepting this, Vitaly Koloyev would relinquish any other rights or claims against the Skyguide company. So they're literally just paying him off. Basically. Please don't sue us in the future. Yeah, his whole family would basically be hushed away for some dirty money, in his Screw opinion. that. I'm coming for their throats. I don't care. Well, here's how he felt. Okay. This document enraged him. And he made up his mind that he wanted to meet the company director and the air traffic controller in person because he wanted to hold them accountable mm-hmm. on a personal level that you caused this to happen. Of course. At the end of the first year after the collision, there was a memorial service held, which was attended by the head of the Sky Guide company, Alan Rossier. Vitaly approached the man and asked him to facilitate a meeting with the air traffic controller, Peter Nielsen. Rossier did not respond to the request. But Vitaly couldn't resist and he couldn't heal. He wasn't able to go back to his life or his architecture practice. He was at the cemetery at all hours of the day and night, crying over his family's gravestones. After a time, he finally hired a private investigator to track down Nielsen's home address, which was in Kloten outside of Zurich, Switzerland. And then one day, Vitaly disappeared. His brother Yuri was concerned because he knew that his brother was in a very bad way. At age 48, Vitaly felt his life was over. It had been stolen from him. So after his brother lost track of him, Vitaly appeared in Zurich on February 21st, 2004, and checked into a hotel in Kloten. Uh-oh. He made his way to the street where Peter Nielsen lived and was approached on the street by a neighbor. Vitaly asked which house went with the name he had written on a piece of paper, and when the neighbor pointed toward Nielsen's front door, Vitaly decided not to knock. He walked out to the garden and took a seat. 
Peter Nielsen, a Dane who had lived in Switzerland since 1995, saw him through a window and went outside to find out what he wanted. Peter's three young children also followed him out into the garden, curious as to what was going on. As Peter's wife called to the children to come back into the house, she heard what she described as kind of a scream. When she ran back outside, her husband was in a pool of blood, and Vitaly said something to her in German, but it wasn't made public what he said to Peter's wife. I'm guessing it was some sort of blame. Oh yeah, this is what you get for destroying my family, something like that. I'm guessing that was had something to do with that. But why him? <clears throat> I feel like he was the least, yeah, he was the one on duty that day, but it's not his fault. He was overworked and had... Well, there were a lot of things that contributed. He did make some mistakes, but he didn't kill these people. Right. So Vitaly, after this, basically he stabbed Pater, and then he was long gone. The murder weapon was found nearby, thrown into a bush or something during his rush to get away. Witness descriptions matched Vitaly, and he was apprehended. He was charged with the killing. At first, he denied the killing. As the trial went forward, Vitaly claimed he had gone to Nielsen's house just to ask for an apology because the collision that killed his entire family had ended his life as well. He had no explanation as to why he took the knife if his intent was only to talk. In the end, he was convicted of premeditated killing, which in Switzerland is somewhere between manslaughter and murder. Mm -hmm. He received a sentence of eight years in prison. He was set to be paroled in August 2007, but the prosecution appealed the parole and Koloyev was not released. But only a few months later, in November 2007, he was paroled after having served two-thirds of his sentence. When he returned to his hometown, he was met with huge, enthusiastic crowds carrying banners, praising his actions, and fervently supporting his avenging the deaths of his family. They said, this is how a real man should act. Well, one resounding voice of dissent for the local accolades was that of Vladimir Savchuk, who appeared on national TV to condemn the murder. Vladimir Savchuk had substantial moral authority on this matter in that he was the only other man who had lost his entire family in the midair collision between BAL 2937 and the DHL cargo jet. And also there was a, I didn't write this down, but there was a victim's advocacy group that was headed by a lawyer whose child also was killed in that crash. After Vitaly Koloyev had been released and returned home, he was then honored with an appointment to the position of Deputy Minister of Construction of the Republic of North Ossetia, which he held until he retired in 2016. Koloyev also remarried in 2013, and his wife Irina Zhirazova gave birth to fraternal twins, girl and a boy, in 2018 when Vitaly was 62 years old. In 2017, Arnold Schwarzenegger made a movie based on him, and Koloyev complained that Schwarzenegger's portrayal of him made him look as if he were continually begging for pity, and also that Nielsen, as played by Scott McNary, didn't express the arrogance and contempt that Kaloya felt should have been. Although I don't know that Nielsen actually acted with arrogance and contempt, but from Kaloya's point of view, by not apologizing. I think that was where that was coming from. I mean, I get it, but... The sad thing is that Kaloya sounds as if he was a very loving husband and father. And he did deserve the compassion and empathy that now he says he never wanted. But to murder a man in cold blood, when Nielsen's mistakes were not the critical ones that cemented the course of this collision, Mm -hmm. that takes away any sense of righteous rage that he had. Absolutely, Nielsen made mistakes that contributed to a terrible tragedy, but Kaloya purposefully murdered a man in front of his family. Of those two faults, I think Kaloya's intentional one is worse. Oh, for sure. I mean, it may have had a smaller impact on the world as we know it but it it was intentional and that's 
That's why it's worse to me. On the world, sure, but on those kids' world? Oh my god. Yeah. Ugh. So, that is the conclusion I make in installment four of Architect Mayhem. I'm hoping that you have a story where at least somebody wins. <laughs> Someone comes out okay. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about that story because I, I get it. And I Nobody feel so won. heartbroken for that guy, of yeah. course. And if your hands are tied and the law's not doing anything about it, yeah. I get it, but... Well, I think the law thought that by offering a monetary remittance that that somehow they were trying to say, we made a mistake, we won't do this again. But if you're the man whose family is now gone... What is that money going to do for me? And, if and, I don't even want to live, what's the purpose of having right, this money? Right, and like, you know, he probably made almost that much every year. He's Yeah, he wasn't like some schlub working at the grocery store. He was like... Hey, there's nothing wrong with working at the grocery store. <laughs> it's funny, you're the architect, I'm the schlub that worked at the grocery store, so... <laughs> I guess. It is a terrible story because nobody, nothing good happened to anybody in that story. I know, and I've never heard of that. So to hear that there was a big movie that came out about it, I've never. I did all of the research before I even found out about the movie because you know that I'm a pop culture black hole and I don't, I don't remember the last movie I went to at the theater. Yeah, I'm so. the same way. I'm the same way. So that makes sense that neither of us heard of like 90%. <laughs> Like, and I did that with Sam Shepard, too, so I had no idea The Fugitive was a thing. <laughs> All right, so what do yeah. you what do you have today? Today, I have a story. Mine does have... Oh, you have a story this time? I have a story this Holy time. Holy shit, wow. Yeah, uh, so I made this up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell you the story of Christy Renee Salters. Do we need to change the name of our podcast to Sometimes True Crime B&B? Real or not? No, that's already being done. Oh. And that's actually a really fun podcast. That is already a concept that's being done. And the name of that podcast is Live, Laugh, Murder. Mm-hmm. Yep. And tells a story and, and you don't know until the end of the episode if it's a true crime story or if it's a movie plot. So if you haven't heard of Live, Laugh, Murder, go check them out. Yes, on Instagram too. We follow them too. So anyway, please start over. Anyway, since so I today I'm going to tell you the story she's mostly known as christy martin but she was born christy renee salters on june 12 1968 in mullins west virginia okay so she's a gemini like me anyway <laughs> she was born to parents joyce who was a stay-at-home mom and johnny who was a welder at a coal mine so they were just very blue collar people and they lived kind of out in the woods of west virginia and that's just quiet lifestyle they lived okay so she was a super big daddy's girl best friends with her dad first child too so she kind of was a bit of a tomboy growing up because of that and she ended up being the only girl on both the baseball and basketball team at her school good for her Actually, she ended up getting a basketball scholarship after she graduated from high school to Concord College. Okay. And so she attended there and received a Bachelor of Science in Education. Good for her. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of cool because you know she's good because she's like 5'4". She's about my size. (laughs) And she still got a basketball full ride scholarship. That's awesome. In 1989, at the age of 21 years old, Christy began training with a West Virginia boxing coach. She just did it for fun one day as like a workout thing. She wandered into the boxing ring and they're like, hey, try it out. It's stress relief. Yeah, she loved it. So she started just not even for money. She later said that oftentimes she would walk out of the ring after winning and just completely forget to pick up the check because she was just doing it for fun. She wouldn't even take the reward for it. I'm sure it's a super empowering sport for a woman. Yeah, and especially when you grow up and you're such a tomboy and people in those times are probably like, girls can't do this. I mean, back in the times when I would have about her same age. Yeah. <laughs> in those yeah. olden days. 
<laughs> After she got into it, she quickly just rose up the ladder of fame and began just a winning streak. She was winning every single round, never once got knocked out. All of her people wow. were... And she had a quote that she said, well, what difference does it make if I knock you out in the first round or the 10th? I don't care. I'm getting paid the same amount. So <laughs> so she then met and started training under another boxing coach named Jim Martin. And he was pretty big in this industry, so he was going to take her to the next level. At the time, she was 22 and he was 47. And they actually, soon after that, began a romance. So okay. they're both adults. Her mom instantly fell in love with Jim. He got along with their family. He won everybody over. Okay, not in the creepy way then. <laughs> what do you mean? Mom fell in love with him. No, not... kind of, kind of. She still oh, defends boy. him after everything that happened. The mom's like, oh, I just loved Jim. I don't know why she didn't like him. Right, that is a little creepy, but... We'll get into it. We'll okay. get into it. So the first time meeting Jim Martin, he did not want her there. She had been invited to the gym where he was working as a coach. Mm-hmm. And in a quote that he gave to a reporter, he ended up saying, I had it all set up to have her ribs broken. Oh, God. A couple of ribs, anyway. What but an the, ass. Yeah. But the boss shows up, the guy who invited her out to the gym, so I thought I'd put that off for a couple of days. Yeah, I would think. How would it look if I had her ribs broke right away? See what I'm saying? But I'm sort of a macho guy, and I didn't think women belonged in the fight game. So, just a little insight into I think women belong wherever the hell they want to be, so kiss off, buddy. But then he saw her fight and signed her on and decided that he was going to be her coach. Good. Yeah. Eat his words. Hope she but, kicked his butt a few times. So they actually, weirdly enough, became a couple after that and began dating, even though he was still her coach, and they married in the early 90s. All right. Throughout that, around 1996, she even got so famous that she appeared on a cover of Sports Illustrated, and she was, at that time, the only female boxer to ever have made the cover. So wow. She, she eventually was. went by the stage name of the coal miner's daughter, because her dad was a coal miner, but she was literally so prolific that she's often credited with putting women boxing on the map. It was just not heard of in mainstream before this. Okay. So throughout their relationship, Jim was not surprisingly incredibly abusive behind closed doors, but again... Based on his attitude the first time he met her? shocking, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. I would have guessed that he'd be a douche who would hit women. But it was one of those things she ended up saying that it was more of a contract relationship rather than a romance relationship to both of them, where he would be nothing without her and she wouldn't have gotten as far as she did without him being in the ranks and signing off on her. Yeah, well, they could have had just a a working relationship then. They could have, but he was... I'm not going to do this for you unless you marry me. Because he was a gross 47-year-old douchebag and she was a young 22 beautiful girl. Ugh. So, gross. yeah. So, that we're going to hate him. I'm just going to give you that right now. So, he was basically the Harvey Weinstein of boxing. Exactly. It's just like what you see in Hollywood all the time where these gross. creepo guys come in and just use this little starlet's fame. You know, I have seen large age gap relationships that mm-hmm. were love relationships and they yeah. really loved each other. But when you see stuff like this where it's just a power trip by somebody, yeah. that's disgusting. And I think she played it off where it wasn't like that. Like she hid a lot of this stuff until all the stuff goes down. Of course. But even her friends were like, he wouldn't let her be around us. He wouldn't let her talk on the phone with us without him hearing it. He would tap all of her stuff. Typical controlling. She's just trapped. Yeah. Gaslighter. So how could she tell anybody if he was always on her back, you know? Yeah. So he would talk down to her constantly, made her feel like nobody actually liked her. He made her weigh herself in front of him three times a day every day so that she was perfectly in shape for him and stuff. And then he eventually... What's going to happen between lunch and breakfast? I mean, 
breakfast and lunch. It's just a power move, you know? Like, He's just being an asshole. So he eventually set up cameras in the bathroom and in the bedroom and caught her in some compromising positions. I don't really want to go into detail because that's personal. I don't want to put that out there if it doesn't mm-hmm. need to be. But he set up these cameras in all these places that she's going to be doing personal stuff and would record it and then show it to all of his friends and then threaten to show it to her dad and mom and of her doing sexual acts and things like that. There's and nothing her, wrong with doing those things. So if she's doing to them... her, it's like her dad's no, her best friend. Like, no, I'm not saying that no, she I should know, let her dad see that stuff. I'm just saying to shame her because she's doing something that is a natural human action. Mm-hmm. That's just, oh, I hate this guy. And then if she wasn't doing sexual crap, then you'd have a problem with her for that, too. What's, she yeah, can't win Yeah, no matter this. what she does, you're going to... She just can't win. God, this guy's an ass. Yeah. The couple ended up moving into a Florida suburb called Apopka. Christy was obviously unhappy in this marriage, and after nearly 20 years of it... Oh, God. Yeah, so like 2010-ish, she began confiding in close friends that... She was putting her foot down. She'd had enough. She was going to get out. She started contacting a lawyer and stuff like that behind his back to try to was she still, figure um, something out. Was she still boxing by then? Yes. Yes, she was. Okay. She's early 40s now. All right. She said to one of her friends, she was positive that he was going to kill her, but she decided that at the end of the day, it would be easier to have him kill her than staying in that relationship in that situation. Oh, so she just kind of made an impossible decision and said, well, I'm going to leave and whatever happens, it's going to happen. So... On November 23rd, 2010, Christy was sitting on the edge of her bed. And this is going to get really gruesome. I'm just going to warn you, trigger warning, there's a lot of really graphic stuff. But it's not no sexual assault or anything. Just graphic as in violent. Hang in there, y'all. This is the happy story. This is the happy story. Just hang until the bad part's over. Okay, okay. So November 23rd, 2010, Christy was sitting on the edge of their bed She was putting on her shoes, and she only had one shoe on at the time. She was just about to go for a run that night. Mm -hmm. I think it was about 5.30 in the afternoon. Her husband, Jim, walked into the room hiding something behind his back, and she wasn't really paying attention because he just walked in. She's just tying her shoes. And he said very calmly to her, I need to show you something. And without any warning, he pulled a nine-inch buck knife from behind his back and plunged it into her torso with that. And she didn't even have time to look up and see what was happening. Like, it just happened. And so he ended up stabbing her before she could even respond to what was happening four times in her side and breast before she, again, had a chance to react. Oh, God. So Christy, out of sheer what the hell is happening, pushed herself backwards onto the bed trying to get out of his way, out of his grasp, put some distance between them, and she began kicking him with as much might as she could. Yeah. And during that, he began slicing at her legs this time. And this is the graphic part I was warning you about. Okay. He embedded the knife between her calf muscle and the bone and then dragged so that her calf muscle was now hanging. They said eight inches of flesh was hanging from her ankle. Oh it was completely God. detached from the bone. Oh. During the stabbing, Jim's hand slipped on the blade and accidentally cut his own palm, poor baby. So he dropped the knife. And Christy, knowing this was maybe the only chance she was going to get where he was had his guard down a little bit, so, so she's gone through all these stab wounds. Mm-hmm. Her calf has been eviscerated. Yeah, her legs basically. And now right he now. cuts his hands so he can't hold and the knife. And he's like, anymore. "Oh my god, that hurt!" Oh, poor me. Yeah. So he drops the knife, and she, so she jumps up and she falls on the floor though because she doesn't have a calf muscle. You know, kind of missing an entire muscle in your leg. Yeah. So when she falls, Jim ends up pinning her down on the ground and began beating her head against the floor. And I think they had either tile or wood floors, yeah, so it was something brutal. hard. 
He starts beating her on the floor and then beating her head against the corner of their dresser. Jesus Christ. During this, again, graphic, I'm so sorry. He got her ear caught on one of the dresser drawers and almost ripped it off completely. <sighs> As this is happening, she then realizes that he has a gun in the pocket of his pants because she can feel the weight and the barrel's kind of sticking out. She should grab it and shoot him in the so face. So she does. She takes oh. action. <laughs> the second she realizes, oh my God, he's got a gun. And she takes it out of his pocket and takes it from him and immediately detaches the clip and throws it so that he can't use it if he were didn't she shoot him with it? Well, she was so panicked. She was like, I just have to make sure he can't do anything more that's going to kill me immediately, you know? Okay. Pretty injured at this point. She's pretty injured, yeah. But her instincts are still good. And the horrible thing, too, it was her gun that she had in the house for her protection against him that she didn't think he knew about. She had it hidden under the mattress that he had found. So, frustrated that she wasn't going down easy, Jim then beat her in the jaw with the butt of the gun, which now had no clip in, but so he's still going to use it as a weapon. Christy still managed to say, and she quoted this later on, sorry, Grandma Jan, motherfucker, you cannot kill me. <laughs> wow. And she just, yeah, she's a fighter. Oh my God. Well, okay. I mean, she's she's always been a fighter. Oh yeah, she's had to be for she's 20 years. She's refused to take it sitting down since Ugh. she was a kid. Jim quickly stood up, pulling the trigger, because I don't think he realized that the the clip was out yet. So he pulled the trigger and aimed at her. Unfortunately, he had already cocked it once, so there was already one in the chamber. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not always empty just because you took the clip out. Yeah, so there was one bullet left in the chamber, and it hit Christy directly in her chest, about three inches away from her heart. Okay. At least that's three inches away. It was three inches away from her heart, but it did pierce her lungs. Oh, how's it do both lungs? It was this way. Oh my god. Like, yeah. I hear you. I thought he was like directly in front of her. Because most of her wounds were on the side of her body. So as she's laying there struggling to breathe because both of her lungs are pierced, she's just begging him, please call 911. 911. You don't have to go to jail for murder. Just call 911. Call somebody. Yeah. So he goes... Because like, we all know that attempted murder is almost nothing in the eyes of the law. Attempted murder. Yeah, you get less time because you're bad at murdering. With, like, the smug asshole he is, he went and grabbed an unplugged landline, which for any Gen Zers that don't know, landlines, if they are not plugged in, do not work. <laughs> um, and mocked dialing 911 on there and saying, sorry, I can't get it to work. Mm. And just taunting her. So he proceeded to watch her bleed out and slowly fade in and out of consciousness for the next 30 minutes. And once he was sure she was dead, or at least gonna die, her breath was getting shallow. She was taking fluids in her lung because she's bleeding profusely. So he then thought, oh, well, she's good as dead, and walked into the bathroom and just turned on the shower to hop in and take a little scrubby scrub. Yeah, I think I'll have myself a nice shower now. Super casual. Go out and have a beer with the boys. But luckily, the sound of the water running in the next room, she jolted up and was, oh my god, he's preoccupied, I have a chance to... He thinks I'm dead. I'm getting out of here. Yeah. So she got a sense of urgency to get out, and she pulled herself to her feet, dragging her injured leg along I was going to say, I'm sure she was hopping. Yeah, she was hobbling. And they had a really long driveway out in the country type of situation. So she had to go through the winding, twisting, turning driveway all the way out to the main road. But she made it, and she flagged down a random man who just happened to be driving down the street. Imagine that sight. You're driving down the road, and this woman is just sliced to bits. And he rolled down the window, and she had had the wherewithal to grab the gun and take it so that if he he chased after her, he couldn't just put the clip back in and 
you know, with a knife, you have to be close up, but from a distance, you can still shoot her pretty. That's right, yeah. So she took the gun, and he rolled down the window, and she just threw the gun in his passenger seat and told him, get me to a hospital right now, because I am not dying because of this mother effort. Good. God, she's fierce. I know. Ugh. So, unknown to Christy, wow. Jim had actually already noticed that she was gone. He had walked out as she was hobbling down the driveway, and was now standing in the driveway in his underwear, watching the car drive away and take her to safety. So he actually bolted and... They couldn't find him for the next seven days. Oh, little Brian Laundry action going yeah, on. Yeah, seriously, cowards. So Christy was life flighted to a hospital in Orlando. Wow. And after many hours, they said two or three hours of trying to even stabilize her enough to transfer her. It took hours. Yeah. But she wasn't. Well, she probably stabilized. lost most of her blood. And they kept saying her lung as much as they tried just wouldn't reinflate. So they're like, we don't know if we can fix this. You fix a flat. <laughs> yeah, they need to invent fix a flat for lungs, but I guess then it wouldn't take the oxygen in. Sorry. I don't know. I'm not that medically trained enough to know the logistics of that, but okay. Pretty sure it wouldn't work. Okay, so she was eventually stabilized. At the trial, finally it started, and I think it was 2012, so this all happened in 2010. But at the trial, after giving her heartbreaking testimony, Christy surprised everyone by, after she got down from the witness stand, she was supposed to go back to her seat next to the lawyers. But she made a beeline straight to where he was sitting, and everybody was like, oh gosh, she's going to kick his ass right now. <laughs> so, But instead, she simply calmly leaned down and said, I hope you rot, motherfucker. <laughs> And, then and I seat. hope he does, too. Yeah, me too. Sorry, I'm getting teary because I just love her so much. God, she's a badass. I love her, um, too. So in his testimony, Jim, the asshole that he is, stated that he did not ever stab her, but the gun had simply misfired somehow while they were fighting. He never stabbed her. Never once. Yeah. So all not of that sure was that happened, yeah. paper cuts, maybe? <laughs> and I have this quote from the prosecutor after he said that, who said, so your theory is a bullet magically ricocheted down, cut her calf in half, bounced back, and just happened to end up in the middle of her chest. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> like, totally serious. I see. Yeah. And, the, and the other four stab wounds from before? Yep, that all just ricocheted back and forth all over. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's, just, that's the story he's sticking with, so. Well, I mean, you have to imagine that a guy who spent the last 20 years gaslighting this amazing woman oh yeah has he, of course he thinks that his word is whatever i say mm-hmm. everybody's just gonna fall for it and the prosecution was actually shocked he never i think he didn't have a very good lawyer or something because they went into this trial expecting he was gonna use that she's bigger than me she's younger than me she's got more muscle and more training and boxing than i do and stuff like that against her oh she was attacking me this was self-defense and they didn't do that they basically just because his ego wouldn't take that absolutely his ego would not be able I to think handle that's what it was he was so stuck on the macho man that that's he right. couldn't admit that maybe he had she had a shot of overpowering him yeah of course he has to always be the guy who is the most powerful one mm-hmm. and when he felt like he was insecure because of her mm-hmm. he's like well I'll show her. Doesn't feel nice, does it? No, Jim? it doesn't. It doesn't feel nice. And that's just tough tiddlywinks for him. But at the end of the day, James Martin was found guilty, no shock, well, of hope. attempted second degree murder in June of 2012. Why is it second degree? I think they just didn't fight it because the con- he was Cuz he walked in there with the with the weapons. Enough. Yeah, he was old enough at this point that I think even the sentence with second degree murder, he's not getting 
Because she's 40 and he's 20-something years her seniors, so he's in his 60s. So he ended up getting 25 years for the secondary attempted murder, and then he got an additional 10 years for kidnapping or something strange like that on okay. top of it. Holding her against her will. For the last 20 years. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> By the time he's even eligible to get out for parole, he'll be 93. So <laughs> we're kind of like, you're going to rot in jail. Yeah. He ended up actually suffering a stroke just recently, like in the last three years. Oh, how sad for him. So we don't think he's getting out, hopefully. It's not a nice thing to wish bad upon anybody, but you know what? I don't have to wish good on them either. Mm -hmm. I just... I'm a big fan of letting the universe and karma do their thing. (laughs) I don't know where I've heard it recently. People that go around saying, have the day you deserve. Mm -hmm. And I would say this is a good case of that. Absolutely. Well, it's not like anybody beat him up and he had a stroke because of that. He just had a stroke. So can I be a little happy about that? Sure. Sure I can. (laughs) But. Well, you know what? If nothing else, it makes him less of a threat. Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe well, it's not... time to neutralize this threat. Well, now he's this little weak old man in prison surrounded by men. Guess what? You're at the bottom of the ladder now, buddy. And you did this to your wife. It was all 12 years ago, right? This was 2010. So okay. he went to jail in 2012. So Okay. Yeah. So he's in his 70s now. He's, yeah. Yep. Wow. In 2016, she continued boxing. She actually opened her own boxing company where now she trains and stuff like that. In 2016, Christy was the first female boxer ever inducted into the Nevada Hall of Fame because a lot of her matches were in Las Vegas. That's where she would perform at Mandalay Bay is like where she would stay all the time. And that's just... Okay. So they inducted her into the Nevada Hall of Fame. I stayed there once. I did. A long, long, long time ago. A long, long time ago. (laughs) So off topic right now. We always are. But, so after everything, that was in 2016 when she was inducted into the Nevada Hall of Fame. After everything that she went through, Christy officially, about a year later, came out and announced that she was gay this entire time. She was only with him because he was pressuring her and she was too scared to leave and wasn't allowed to do the things she wanted to do. So so he wasted her entire life when she could have found someone Mm -hmm. that would have loved her and respected her and treated her well all this time. But we do have a happy ending because oh, good. in 2017, she married Lisa Hollowan. Oh, good. Who was, fun fact, one of the women she used to wrestle in her boxing matches when she was married to this jackass. And the first time they met was in the ring 16 years prior. The first word they ever said to each other was her, Lisa, her wife, said, Good luck, Martin. And then in response, Christy said, good luck getting knocked the fuck out, bitch. (laughs) And then Lisa now fondly looks back and says, yeah, the first time we met, she knocked me unconscious. (laughs) So now they're happily living out their life together. And in 2020, she was inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. So her name will go down in history and not because of Jim. When did they get married? 2017. So five years of happiness. If you have the right happiness, mm-hmm. that can be worth a lifetime. So I'm yep. so glad for them. Yeah. So that's as happy as a, of an ending we're going to get. That jerk hole is wasting away and she finally gets to live the life she wanted to live. And I kind of hate her mom a little bit because she still doesn't accept that she's gay and is a little bit like, oh, I still oh, love Jim. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the mom. Yeah, her mom still is like, I don't understand why she just couldn't get along and love Jim. <laughs> I don't know, maybe because he stabbed her 10,000 times. What I want to know is why did that come out in the cat voice? Well, <laughs> if anyone's going to commit a murder in this house, it's going to be puss. Oh, my God. What, what a story, though, right? What a story. I'm so glad that she had a... Oh. She gets to have a happy ending. I did want to mention, because I didn't realize this, I did the same freaking thing you did. 
where after I did all this research, I found out that there was actually a movie that I think is on Netflix. It came out in 2021 about her entire story. So if you want to know more, just go watch this movie. I don't How know. How do you know it's real? I mean, it may be fictionalized. No, just it's, because- like a, it's like a documentary. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's on, about her life. Okay. So it's called Untold Deal with the Devil. So if you want, I haven't even heard of that. I haven't heard of that. It will just came out in 2021. But I don't have to leave the house to see Netflix. Yeah. I would have to leave yep. the house to go see the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie in 2017. But let's be honest. If we uh-huh. didn't know that this story was this kind of inspiration, we wouldn't go watch a movie about a female boxer. Because that's know. just not I something I'm Pretty into. Baby. Pretty Baby. What's that? Uh, that's old. It was Hillary Swank. It was years ago. Hillary Swank's not that old. Could have been that long ago. (laughs) Hillary Swank's probably not that much younger than me. She's probably in her... That's not even old. In her late 40s now. Oh, God. Anyway. Anyway. (laughs) Jinx. Jinx to you. Uh, This week, we did want to give a huge shout-out to Chelsea Deanne for the awesome review we got on Apple Podcasts. She is from Crime Again Podcast, so if you have a chance, check her out. And we want to always remind you that we have some really good friends who are podcasters as well. Mm -hmm. And if you are out of things to listen to, we would encourage you to check out Spilling the Crime. World's True Crime. And Murder on My Street. That's all we have. I think that's the end of episode 16. Yeah, and if you have a chance, check us out on Twitter and Instagram at True Crime BNB. Yes, and if you want to send us any suggestions for stories or things that you would like to hear, you can send us an email at truecrimebnbpod at gmail.com. And mom, we tried our best this week. I try my best, but I think you'll appreciate because you are also a strong, independent woman who don't need no man, so you get it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think my mom would actually like this story. Yeah, you understand it. It's warranted when it's warranted. Yes. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week, and we hope you're here too. See ya. Bye, crime family. Bye. Sound check, sound check, sound check, sound check, sound check, sound check. Ooh. Should we do for sound check today? Probably just talk. Why would we do that? I don't know. We're terrible at that. Mm. Who would listen to us? <laughs> Actually, she ended up getting a basketball scholarship after she graduated from high school. And... <laughs> And that was Bailey being excited about our friends. All right, we'll hear from... No, you won't.